0: Uh, good morning. How are y'all doing? Oh man, so glad to be up here and 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 preaching and hanging out with y'all. Uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a it's a privilege and an honor to have you. It's an honor to hang out with you, and uh, and and you know, like I gotta preach, but that's also very very cool. Before we dive into all of that, twice a month. We do this thing called Mission Moment. I hope I don't spill this. We do this thing called Mission Moment. And Mission Moment is really this opportunity for us to, to inform you of, of what we're doing, not only behind the scenes, but what we're, what we're actively doing behind the scenes missionally. And so this month, we're pretty much dedicating our Mission Moment. To church planting. Part of my role, part of my job is to not just develop that ministry, but to be involved in that ministry, and not just as we look to plant other churches in the future, but to currently partner with other churches who are either uh, who just got planted, who pastors who need coaching and development. We want to be a part of that because we love seeing healthy churches being planted, whether it's here in the valley or beyond our border slash checkpoint. In and so we want to see churches planted. And so uh, this morning I want to introduce you to, I don't know if the slide will go up, this is going to be Christ Redeemer Church. They're out in Moreno Valley, California. Uh, They recently planted, the the lead pastor, his name is Martin Medina, Uh, he just planted maybe about two to three months ago Uh, They're planting in Moreno Valley. Moreno Valley is a city that's about the size, if not just a little bit bigger than McAllen. The demographic and context of Moreno Valley, which is located in Southern California, uh, the demographic and the context of Moreno Valley is very similar to that here in the valley. So a lot of the things that Martin and I get to talk through uh, actually are pretty relevant to some of the things that we walk through here in our context. Um, And so they've been blessed. In terms of uh, in terms of a, a space to meet at, but they're also still in this very relational side of things where they do meet uh, at an old Baptist building in uh, in on Sunday mornings. But because their crew is also pretty small, from time to time they do go to the park and have service there where they welcome other people and they can afford it because of the weather. And so. Uh, So that's also very, very cool. With that being said, we have partnered with Christ Redeemer financially. So uh, Martin and his small team, not only do I get the privilege of meeting with him regularly uh, through a Skype call, we get to talk about ministry, get to check in to see how him and his family are doing. There'll be a picture of him, his wife, and I think it's his son. Um, uh, There'll be a picture of them in, in just a bit. But I get to meet with them monthly, but in addition to that, we also support them Financially, so that they can also, or so specifically, so that Martin can meet with the the people in his congregation to counsel them, care for them, meet them for coffee, meet them for breakfast, uh, meet them for dinners, uh, welcome them into his home, but in addition to that to equip them. They just launched their small group ministry about a month and a half ago, and so they're getting their leaders uh, resources so that they're equipped, making sure that they are just as healthy as possible as they lead. Love and serve not just one another but the city at Moreno Valley, California. Over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear more from Martin in the summer. uh, We got a video from him where he's going to walk you through. What Morello, where Moreno Valley is, kind of the, the like I said, the demographic and the context of Moreno Valley, and then he's going to tell you a little bit about Christ Redeemer, and he'll do that about uh, excuse me, he'll do that twice a year, kind of give us this update of hey, this is what's going on on our side of California, and so be praying for him. the 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 initial part of a church plant is is difficult uh, because as it gets planted. Man, you're trying to create momentum while at the same time invest in leaders, disciple other people. So not just are you not only are you trying to grow it numerically, but you're also growing it relationally. And so there's a lot of work that comes into the initial stages of a of a church plan, of a brand new church plan. So be sure to be praying for him and his family. Uh, Again, out in Moreno Valley, California. If you got questions about church planning, I'd love to talk about that later on this month. I'm gonna talk a little bit about acts 29 which is our church partner uh, our church planting uh, network that we are a part of but other than that that's martin that's his wife that's his little boy uh they got a second one on the way uh, and so that's very very cool be praying for him and his family Let's go ahead and dive into our time. If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, open it up or load it to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be landing the plane, so to speak. No, we are. We're, we're landing the plane today. In 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at uh, 14 verses. I'm going to not necessarily go through them very quickly, but we are going to try and combine all of them to see what Peter is is trying to get at us uh, uh, with on these verses. And so I'll let you get there. Um, Again, if you're new... We've got Connect cards. Fill one out. Drop it in the offering basket. We'd love to hang out. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in the, in the chairs. Pick one up. That's our gift to you. Please take it with you. Uh, so once again, First Peter chapter 5. We're going to walk through all of it. Verses 1 through 14. By way of recap, uh, I just want to give you a, a brief summary of, uh, of where we've been with, with Peter over the past couple of Sundays, outside of Holy Week, Nathaniel preached on chapter 4. He did a wonderful job, uh, did a, just a really, really good job walking us through and teaching us God's Word. So if you see him around, make sure you hug him. He likes that kind of thing. Apart from that, kind of summarizing all of 1 Peter, the entirety of his letter has been steadfast encouragement. One of the first things that we talked about when we opened up 1 Peter was that this wasn't a letter of strong exhortation. This wasn't a letter of rebuke. This was a letter from a pastor, an older pastor, encouraging other churches. And, and his entire letter has really just been summarized as a giant form of encouragement. Even when it seems like he's having a harsh word, he's really just encouraging the churches to continue to move forward. And he began this by walking us through, or walking them through, and obviously it applies to us, by walking them through the work of God in Christ for them. You see, everything after uh, toward the end of chapter one through where we're at right now has really been practical. Peter has walked us through what the pursuit of holiness means. And then he has walked us through what the pursuit of holiness means in specific social contexts. He told us what the pursuit of holiness meant when it came to the church body. He told us what the pursuit of holiness meant when it came to being in community with our city and friends and those who don't know Jesus. He told us what it looked like to pursue humility when it came to governing authorities or when we experience unjust suffering. We looked at the pursuit of holiness even in marriage. All of that, however, all of that was founded upon the foundation of the work of Jesus. On the person and work of Jesus. That it is through the redemption that Jesus provides for sinners that the pursuit of holiness is made possible. Nathaniel walked through this through all of chapter 4. Chapter 4 was all suffering. Even in suffering, the work of God in Christ applies to that. And so now as we walk into chapter 5, Peter is bringing it all in. He's closing it down by addressing church leadership and the church body. Themes like suffering are going to be in the background. They're not as loud this time because he's bringing it to a conclusion. So he's going to talk about church leadership. He's going to talk about the church body and what our roles are, what it's going to look like for the church to stand firm in the grace of God and in humility. That's where we're headed to this morning. And so, what I'll do is, um, I'm going to read through uh, verses 1 through 14. I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. So, this is what Peter says, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By silvanius a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, he's referring to the letter, declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. God, as we, uh, as we come before you to continue our time in worship, through hearing the preached word, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in us. I pray that as we work through and listen to your word, that you would cause conviction, that you would challenge us, and that you would compel us, not just to change, but to repent. Not just to fix things, but to stand firm in the grace that you have provided for us. God, I pray that as we close our time in Peter, that those who know Jesus will have come to know him better. God, I pray that those who don't know Jesus and are here with us this morning would come to know Jesus through the grace of your word. God, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all ready? All right, here we go. So, if a church is going to be rooted in the grace of God, one of the first things I told you about is that we're going to talk about what it means to stand firm in the grace of God and in humility. If a church is going to be rooted, if a church is going to do those things well, then we must have an understanding of what health means of what it means to be healthy, and how to fight for it, and why it is a priority. This morning, Peter is going to walk us through in this large chunk of Scripture, Peter is going to walk us through the what, the how, and the why behind a healthy church. And he's going to do it with encouragement. He started this letter off with encouragement. He's going to end this letter in encouragement. And so we're going to break this down into three sections. The first one is going to be the role of pastors or church leadership. The second one is going to be the role of the church body. And the third section is going to be a final encouragement. If you're taking notes, we're essentially breaking it down by first section is verses 1 through 4. The second one is going to be 5 through 9. And then finally 10 through 14. So let's look at verses 1 through 4. I'll reread them. I'll go fairly quickly. I'm going to give you some notes along the way. Peter begins by saying, so I exhort the elders among you. If you're taking notes, I want you to circle among you, or even just the word among. That's really important when it comes to church leadership, and I'll explain why in just a minute. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ As well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, I think that was one or two verses I already forgot, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that one section. And the reason I asked you to circle the word among is because that speaks highly to the kind of elders you ought to find in a church that they are among the people of God. That's really, really important. While there are several other models, I do want to speak about two models. One is a model uh, that is organized through hierarchy. Another one is a model that is uh, uh, referred to often as the anointed one model. We're going to talk about those two things. See, when it comes to the model through hierarchy, I'm certainly not saying that God cannot work through these two models. I just disagree with both of them. The first one, when it comes to the model of hierarchy, ultimately what that suggests is that an individual in the church can climb the ladder of religious structure through hierarchy. You go from pastor to elder, elder to bishop, bishop to cardinal, cardinal to X, Y, and Z. I I really don't know this as much as I got, right? Right? But the idea behind that is, is that as they increase in hierarchy, they are now further removed from the church relationally. And Peter says, he says to the elders, shepherd the flock among you. Or he says again in verse verse one, I exhort the elders among you that pastors are to be among the flock. Pastors aren't necessarily separate because before before they are pastors, they're disciples. They are to be among the people of God. The second model is, is often the anointed one model. And the anointed one model often teaches, and this is something that is kind of dominant here in the valley, the anointed one is uh, the kind of model that suggests that the pastor has some special access to God that the rest of the church doesn't. That apparently leadership has this like Batman red phone that they can just call in and God's on the other line, but it is a form of access that the rest of the church does not have. That's a very foolish model. Again, Peter says, shepherd the flock among you. I exhort the elders among you. Pastors do not have this secret access to God. And so whether you're a member here thinking about being a member or you're going to go or you're a member at another church. I don't know. Maybe you're visiting. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. (laughs) whether that's happening, be mindful of those two models. I'm not saying God can't work through them. I just don't, I just disagree with them biblically. Pastors are to be among the people of God. That's very, very important. So Peter continues, I exhort the elders among you, and he relates to them as a fellow elder. He's not saying, hey man, like, I'm I'm speaking to you with authority. Do things this way. He's relating to them, which tells you a little bit about that word again when he says to be among them. He's just encouraging them. He's like, hey man, as a brother, and I'm also a pastor, I'm just just laying this stuff out for you. So he says, uh, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he was there, as well as a partaker in the glory of God that is to be revealed. He tells them, here are the two things. This is the what. Here are the two things pastors are to do, and he says they are to shepherd the flock of God, and that they are to exercise oversight. That's very specific language. It's very specific language, and I think it's language that is very personal to Peter, in particular when he says, shepherd the flock among you. If we take a quick break and go back, I think it's to John 21, where Jesus restores Peter. Do you remember that, that scene on the beach where, where Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I do. And he says, feed my lambs, right? Peter, do you love me? You know I do. And feed my sheep, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's grieved by this time because he recognizes, man, the sin that he has caused, but that he's also being restored by the grace of God. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. When he says shepherd the flock among you, that word shepherd not only means pastor, but it's also an active tense of saying, feed my sheep. What are the sheep being fed? What are the people being fed? It's the word of God. That's what they get fed. That the people of God get fed a steady diet of the word of God, which is why we believe doctrine is very important. Which is why we believe that we want to stand on the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, that it is our ultimate authority. That as the people of God, you are to not only take the word of God, but you're also to do business with it. So he says, shepherd the flock among you. So doctrine is involved, a steady diet of doctrine. And then he says, exercise oversight. Exercising oversight can mean a couple of things. I think one of the things that I really would just like to talk about when it comes to exercising oversight is that Peter is talking about the maturity of the church, the spiritual maturity of the church, that as you receive the Word of God, yes, you are to do business with the Word of God in hopes that you would grow up in spiritual Maturity—a fancy way of saying that is just discipleship—and we're going to see that that's also the church's role. See the mission here at Storehouse, and I would even argue that the mission of the church as a whole is to make disciples. Part of making disciples also includes maturing disciples. I don't have it memorized, but you can go to Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-eight, and Paul says, "Him we proclaim, teaching with all wisdom." And we present one another mature in Christ. That is the role of the pastor, but there's also the role of the church. Exercising oversight has everything to do with the Word of God and not about programs. I'm not knocking programs. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that's not the priority. Right? So Peter says, shepherd the flock among you and exercise oversight. Sometimes that also means walking the church through things like church discipline. It's awkward. It's hard. It's muddy waters. Nobody likes to walk through it. We've walked through it. It's hard. No one's knocking that. But the other part of church discipline also means church restoration. If you're unfamiliar with church discipline, that is when a member of the congregation is unrepentant. And by the grace of God, we see the Holy Spirit work through the church and in the individual for them to come to a place of repentance to when they are now restored. Now I can walk you through that and that sounds really easy on paper. What is it that Mike Tyson said, right? Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. (laughs) Right? I can walk you through that on a whiteboard and be like, yeah, this is what it looks like. It's muddy waters. I would not say I'm an expert in it. But nevertheless... Pastors walk the church through things like that. Because things like that, like church discipline and church restoration, aim at maturing the church. So shepherd the flock among you and exercise oversight. That's what he tells pastors. Then he tells the how. So that was the what. And then he gives us the how. Essentially what he is saying is you've got to want to do this. right? He goes on to say... Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. What does that mean? It means that pastors ought to lead according to the word of God as God has revealed it in his word. Not that pastors lead freely and in accordance to their preference. Everything stems from a place of conviction that has been revealed through the word of God. That pastors are to lead eagerly and not for shameful gain. I mean, when we hear that, we can sadly think of so many stories where leadership exercised poor stewardship. Financial, poor, poor financial stewardship but it doesn't just apply to that. That also means that sometimes church leadership desires an unhealthy form of power and so that they would be held, uh, or so that they wouldn't be held accountable. They desire more power and they try to gain more by leading abusively. Sometimes they lead abusively through emotion Sadly, you can look at things, reports that have come out over the past year where pastors have even dived into uh, exercising unhealthy authority that doesn't exist over church members, emotionally, physically, and sexually abusing members. He says, lead by example. Don't dominate the flock. He says, not domineering, but as examples. Pastors are servant leaders. That's what they are. Pastors are servant leaders. They have a love for God. They have a devotion to their family. And they have a love for the church. Sounds like a regular person. I don't have any authority over you. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Okay? I don't have authority over you. I don't know what kind of a background you come from in terms of church, right? Maybe, sadly, unfortunately, leadership exercised authority that they didn't have. Maybe it was abusive, maybe it was spiritual abuse, maybe it was emotional abuse. The only authority that a pastor should have is the authority that comes from the Word of God. A pastor is just an individual who has been called by God to shepherd the flock among them and exercise oversight. The qualifications of a pastor are all character qualifications, not skilled qualifications. The only skill is that of teaching. And I, I'm kind of okay at that, right? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't have like, spiritual authority over you. Like, if you. If you come to me, like, whether it's like discipleship or you just got stuff, man, I want to be faithful to the Word of God. But I'm going to just tell you this right now. I'll be, I'm going to be 100% real with you all, okay? I'm not a counselor. I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm not a licensed therapist, okay? I'm neither one of those things. So if we hang, if we, it's in discipleship, if it's in a formal setting— I'm going to share the word of God, and you got to be okay with me saying sometimes, I don't know. You should find somebody who does. I'll help you find somebody who does. My role is to shepherd the flock that is among me. That means we hang out, which I love hanging out with y'all, and I love y'all. It's to exercise oversight to make sure we're in discipleship relationships, maturing one another in the faith so that you can disciple one another. That's my primary role to preach and teach. Okay? Whew, got that off my chest. I'm glad. <laughs> it's just, I've wanted to make it, make, make it very clear. Okay? Because I think oftentimes when we look at those models, be like, man, the pastor, the priest, that individual has all the answers. No, we don't. I promise you, I don't have a lot of answers. Nevertheless, Peter says that pastors are to lead willingly, eagerly, and as an example. That they are to lead as an example. Then he gets to the why. Well, Why? We looked at the what. What do pastors do? They shepherd and exercise oversight. Well, how do they do it? They do it willingly. They do it eagerly and they do it as an example. Well, why do they do that? And Peter lands in verse four. Where he says, one day the chief shepherd will appear. There's a reason we don't have a senior pastor here. We believe that that is Jesus. He is the chief shepherd. And as a result of him being the chief shepherd that speaks volumes into the lives of pastors. First thing it ought to tell us is that pastors aren't at the top. They are under shepherds. That they have been called by God and have been given the task and they have been entrusted by God to care for the people of God. They are under shepherds. If a pastor tries to exercise ridiculous authority over you, you can take him here or you just walk out. Pastors are under shepherds. Number two, it tells us what I just mentioned, that God has entrusted his people to them. When it comes to our church, when it comes to storehouse community, you're not my people. You belong to God. I have been entrusted to care for you. And as we raise and develop other men into pastoral ministry, their role will be to shepherd and care for you. But I don't say like, those are my people. No, you belong to God. Your sin has been atoned for through the person and work of Jesus. Not me, not me. And number three, because the chief shepherd will, will appear pastors will be held accountable. They will have to give an account one day. You can find that, I think it's in Hebrews 10. Pastors will have to give an account. And Peter says that if you've done well, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He uses that kind of language because of the Greco-Roman culture. When you look at the Olympics, and someone won, in particular in Greco-Roman wrestling, when someone wins, they're given a wreath, right? They put it over their head. Well, that wreath at some point perishes. It fades. What Peter is saying, that you will receive an unfading crown of glory. What's that unfading crown of glory? He talks about it in chapter 1. It is eternal sonship with God. It is hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. My last encouragement for you in this section, in terms of the role of church leadership, oftentimes, even when, uh, if you go back and read First Peter in the next couple of weeks, you're going to get to chapter 5, and some of you might hesitate and say, oh, well, verses 1 through 4 apply specifically to church leadership. I don't need to think through it. This applies to you. I'd actually like to take a second or two to speak to the men, those of you who are husbands, fathers, you aspire to be husbands and fathers. This is you. That you are to lead eagerly, willingly, and as an example. That you are to shepherd your little flock. Those are the people that God has entrusted you with. You will give an account one day. That you are to exercise oversight. That if and when or when you do exercise discipline, it is coming from a place that is motivated out of love for your children so that they would be more and more like Jesus. This is your role. This is your role if you're in leadership. This is your role if you're a business owner. That you lead willingly, eagerly, and as an example. So don't flip the page just because he says, so I exhort the elders among you. This applies to you. And so he continues, going on to verse 5, he continues by saying, now this is the role of the church. And let me just finish by saying, uh, when it comes to the role of pastors, a healthy church is to be led by gracious leaders. Now let's look at the role of the church. Peter turns his attention now to the church because the role of the church body matters. You matter. You matter. You matter. The church exists to make and mature disciples, and in order for us to be faithful, this is what he says. Peter writes, likewise, this is the what. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We're going to park there. Here's the what. Peter says, You ought to pursue humility. Well, how do you pursue humility? What does that look like? He first addresses those who are young. Now, that could be a couple of things. That could be specifically the young men, it could be those who are just young in general, or maybe those who are young in the faith. Maybe you're a new Christian. Regardless, Peter says, those of you who are young, be subject to the elders. Be subject means to submit to the elders. Let's talk about that word submit before you start straightening up in your chair. That word submit, we defined it a couple of weeks ago as a willing denial of self for the benefit and blessing of others. I'll say it one more time. It's a willing denial of self for the benefit and blessing of others. Of others. And so Peter addresses the young ones first. He says, You need to submit to the elders. Why? Maybe because those who are young in the faith, especially young men, like I like the 20-something year olds, they're always the ones who want to like reject authority. They're the ones who want to resist authority, right? They always got something to say because you read the latest book on the gospel coalition. Like you got all of these things that you want to say. And Peter says, I'm going to talk to you first. Submit yourselves to the elders. And even if it's not the young men, maybe it's just young in the faith. I don't like the word submission. Peter says, submit to the elders. Submit to the elders. Willingly deny yourself for the benefit and blessing of others. And we're going to talk about the why in a minute. But then he continues. He continues. He says, those who are younger... Be subject to the elders. And then he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you. So now he shifts his gear to the whole church. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another notice he's not talking about like, hey, when you're out and about, when you're around people who may not know Jesus, when you're in the community, when you're in the city, he's not talking about that. He's done talking about social contexts. Now he's just addressing the church. And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. That just like, uh, you know, walking out of your house in the morning with clothes on is like kind of a non-negotiable, like I'm always going to have clothes on, right? That's what he says about humility. It's a non-negotiable. You need to clothe yourself with it every single day. And I think sometimes we might even hear that and we might try to get crafty in the sense of like, yeah, but when I have clothes, I have options. I have so many different options of clothes. So does humility mean that it's optional? No, it does not mean it's optional, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And he continues, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When he's talking about grace, he's not talking about salvation. He is saying that the grace, the grace God provides, sustains you, that it empowers you. And he keeps it going. He keeps it going. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That phrase humble yourselves in the original language says be humbled. Be humbled. If we're going to be a healthy church we must pursue humility in particular with one another. Practically, I think that might even get you jumpy. That might even increase your anxiety because that does mean sometimes having those hard conversations. Humility is not passive, so stop treating it like it is. Humility is not passive, just like grace is not passive. Oftentimes, I think the church really, really wants it to be passive. Humility means ignoring someone. Humility means going to the other table for coffee. No, it doesn't. Humility means stop thinking about yourself so much and start putting the needs of others as more significant than yours. If we're going to be a healthy church, then that is the route God is calling us to walk in and through. So please stop making excuses about what humility isn't or what you wish it was. And I get it. Sometimes we're like, well, I'm still processing. Pursue humility. Pursue humility. Because God opposes the proud. But he sustains those who are humble, and he sustains them through his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. So be humbled. The two things that choke a church, straight up, the two things that choke a church is fear and pride. Those are the two things that choke a church. Fear and pride, and we just finished talking about pride. The two things that help a church flourish are grace and humility. Those are the two things that help a church flourish. And so how do we pursue grace, and how do we pursue humility, and how do we fight fear, and how do we fight pride? Well, he tells us. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What? Casting all your anxieties on him. We're going to talk about the because he cares for you in just a minute. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. He says to cast your anxieties. The word cast literally means to throw your anxieties onto the Lord. He is telling us to turn to God in prayer constantly. It is a present tense. It is an ongoing thing. It's not that you do it once and then you get upset with God because you're not sure what to do. It is constant doing, that you are constantly throwing your anxieties onto the Lord. Anxiety comes out of the belief that one must take care of oneself and lack a trust of God. That's what anxiety is. As anxiety starts creeping, you begin to think, I need to take care of this. I need to handle it. No one else knows how to do this because I'm so smart, right? And holy. Like, I need to take care of this. What you are really demonstrating when you lean into your anxiety and refuse to cast it onto the Lord is that you're really demonstrating a lack of trust in God. You are embracing unbelief when you allow your anxiety to increase. And so Peter says, man, how do we pursue humility? How does the church pursue humility? By casting our anxieties onto him. Why do we cast our anxieties onto him? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. And in a minute, we're going to see that God constantly has a supply of grace he cares for you. He goes on to say, when in terms of uh, how do we pursue humility, how do we pursue grace? He says, be sober-minded. We looked at this in chapter one. I think again in chapter three, this is the third time he uses this language of being, about being sober-minded. That when it comes to being sober-minded, what he is talking about is that you are without judgment right? Or not without judgment, but yes, without judgment, but that your your head is clear, that you have sound judgment. And if you really think about it, when it comes to casting your anxieties and being sober-minded, it's cyclical, right? Like if you cast your anxieties onto the Lord, you're going to be sober-minded. If you want to be sober-minded, you need to cast your anxieties onto the Lord. You need to repeatedly turn to Him in prayer. You need to find yourself trusting in the person and work of Jesus, it is cyclical. That's how we do it, man. We be sober minded. How do we be sober minded? Cast your anxieties on the Lord. What is that gonna do? It's gonna help you be sober minded. It's gonna help help you be discerning. So he says, cast your anxieties on the Lord and be sober minded. That was the how. So the what was pursue humility. The how was cast your anxieties and be sober minded. The why is trust and awareness trust and awareness. Why? Why should we cast our anxieties? Why should we be sober-minded? Because God cares for you. That's number one. God cares for you. That he actually draws you near to him. Even the most heart-hearted, hearted -hearted person, the person the most distanced, the most prideful church member is drawn near by the grace of God. That he cares for you. And then number two, he says, pursue this because Satan wants to destroy you. Right? He goes on to say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. If we're going to be a healthy church, man, we need to be grounded. We need to stand firm in the grace of God. We need to pursue humility how we do those things is by casting our anxiety onto the Lord so that we are sober minded so that we're alert because Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion the word devour literally means that he wants to annihilate the christian that he wants to entice the christian that he wants you to exchange the truth about God for a lie everything is being connected and so we resist him we resist him. And so let's look at the final encouragement, because this is where it gets really practical. And some of you who are taking notes love the practical, just tell me what to do. He says, resist him, firming your faith, knowing, and I'm going to read 10 through 14, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And you have suffered a little while, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, you can underline that, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanius, the faithful brothers, I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. He's talking about the church in Rome sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. That's the same guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In this section, I'll be closing it up. In this section, Peter tells us two things. First one is that you're not alone. Especially if anxiety is rising, especially if, man, there's suffering outside of this, you are not alone. And I think that's a that's a really encouraging thing to say to the church, right? He says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Oftentimes I think Christians, especially in difficult seasons or in times of suffering and conflict, you just feel alone. You feel like this can't possibly be happening to anyone else. That I just feel either abandoned, isolated, distanced, and alone. And Peter says here that you're not. That suffering that you're experiencing is being experienced by the brotherhood around the world. When it comes to the language of, especially uh, like military strategy, soldiers often found morale when they learned that the rest of their unit or that the rest of the army was also experiencing hardship because it reminded them that they're not alone and so that that would give them kind of a boost of encouragement to keep going. You don't feel alone. You don't feel like you're the only one out in the battlefield. That's, the similar, that's similar language that Peter is using here. He's saying you're not alone. The sufferings that you are experiencing are actually being shared by other Christians. So you're not alone. That's the first one. The second thing that Peter encourages us with and he says it twice is to stand firm. To stand firm in your faith. And so if we're going to be standing firm in the grace of God, then we need to do it through three things, all of which are listed here in 1 Peter. You ready? Here's the practical. Everybody's getting ready. I see pens coming up. Okay, here we go. The first one, how you stand firm in the grace of God is through the word of God. Not too fancy. It's through the Word of God. Well, how do we do that? Scripture reading, right? Memorizing it, meditating, prayer. In fact, since we all have our Bibles out, let's go to Ephesians 6. This is what Paul writes, beginning in verse 10. He says, Finally, and I would encourage you to memorize this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, this is the armor. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. That's Peter's similar language as well. He goes on to say, verse 14, Stand therefore, having felt fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. How we stand firm in the grace of God is through the Word of God. When you read through the armor of God, the entire armor, for the most part, or the majority of the armor, is defensive. The belt, the breastplate, the shield. The two offensive weapons that the Christian is given is the word of God and prayer. That's how we stand firm in the grace of God and in humility. It is first through the word of God. Number two, we stand firm in the grace of God through the abundance of God's grace. Earlier in this section, Peter said, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory. Here's the thing about grace that makes it so beautiful and sometimes so hard to embrace. Is that God has a never-ending supply of grace for the sinner. That's, that's what it is. Grace is defined as undeserving favor from God towards sinners and he has a never-ending supply of it. In other words, he is supplying it to us, especially when we read 1 Peter in the present tense. So whether you sinned in your heart 10 minutes ago or you jacked it up earlier this morning, the grace that God provides is constant and present, and that he will continue to supply you with this grace until you start looking more and more and more like Jesus. Jesus so that you would grow in your spiritual maturity. He has an abundant supply of grace. Grace transforms us. Grace leads us to worship. Grace brings us to our knees in repentance. Grace calls us to be active as we pursue humility. You can't do it without grace. And God has this huge flow of it for you. That's present tense for you. Number three, we stand firm in the grace of God through the future promises of God. Through the future promises of God. This is what he says may Christ himself would restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That language speaks of two things. It speaks of restoration that is founded upon Jesus. That is a promise, those four things, that we will one day be permanently restored, permanently fixed. And it's all laid on the foundation of the person and work of Jesus. That is how we stand firm in the grace of God and pursue humility. And so for the Christian, are you standing firm in your faith? Or are you being tossed around by the wind? Turn to God in repentance, repeatedly. In worship, be restored. And if you don't know Jesus, turn to him in faith and repentance. Stand upon his never-ending grace and be renewed. I've said it before, and I'm not promising you a car or money. Or, or actually, I, I, yeah, none of those cool things. I'm just promising you a renewed heart. That won't be done by me, but by the Spirit of God. As exiles, as we close our study in Peter, as exiles, standing firm in the grace of God and in humility begins with obedience to the Word of God. But that obedience is a direct result of Of the glorious grace we have first received in and through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, would you humble us, Lord? Would you humble us this morning so that we can stand firm? in your grace so that we can stand firm as we pursue humility. Lord, I'm reminded of this one pastor who says he is a proud person pursuing humility. I think that would be something that many of us would hold fast to. And so as we pursue humility as proud people, would you Humble us, Lord, so that we could stand on the foundation of Your grace. So that we can stand firm on Your work for us in Christ. So that when we hear things like, Our identity determines our activity. That would mean something. That it wouldn't just be theoretical, but that it would be something that we not only believe, but because we believe it, it has implications on our life. God, I know we desire to be a healthy church, and the way for us to be a healthy church is to stand firm in your grace whether it's as leaders or or as just a church body, we are to stand firm in your grace, the grace that you supply to us daily. And that we are to stand firm as we pursue humility as proud people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters and friends here this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that Whatever it was that is the takeaway, that you would take it from the ears, apply it to the mind, and inject it into their hearts. God, I pray for cries of repentance this morning. I pray that we would turn and fix our eyes on Jesus as we respond, not just through giving, but uh, the Lord's Supper or communion and through song. God, as we transition into a time of giving, Lord, this is a continuation of our worship. This is where we are still praising you. If we have begun to have our hearts softened uh, through, through singing, then have our minds and hearts challenged through the word, may you continue to challenge our hearts and our minds through our hands. God, we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.